Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of a senior's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, we're going to talk about mild cognitive impairment. And this episode is actually based on the question that one of you wrote in to me earlier this year. So let me read you the question. I realize that I sometimes have difficulty connecting a name and a face. I presume that this is mild cognitive impairment. On researching the topic online, I find a variety of suggestions for alleviating it. These include supplements, such as lipoic acid, vitamin E, omega-3s, curcumin, and also food choices, such as fish, vegetables, black and green teas. I've also seen aerobic exercise, yoga, and meditation recommended. Do these actually help with mild cognitive impairment? What's been proven to work? Now, I like this question a lot. And in general, I like using your questions as the basis for podcast episodes or articles on the website. But before I go into answering this question, let me just say that if you have a question about health and aging, the fastest and best way for you to get information from me is to post your question as a comment on the website. And generally, I post replies to comments. I post information and response within a week or two. Whereas if you send your question in via email, I might eventually use it in a blog post or podcast episode, but it could be weeks or months before it's published. And unfortunately, due to the amount of email I get, I can no longer send most people a response by email. So please, if you have a question, search the site to find a related article and then post your question in the comments section. Now, let's get to talking about mild cognitive impairment, which is sometimes abbreviated MCI, because this is a topic that people often ask me about. It's diagnosed in a fair number of people, and also many older adults want to maintain their best mental abilities for as long as possible. So everything related to memory and thinking is an important topic when it comes to older people. Now, in this case, the person with the question wants to know what works for improving mild cognitive impairment, and I'm going to cover that later in the episode. But first, I want to start by reviewing what is mild cognitive impairment and how it's diagnosed, and then we can talk more about what kinds of approaches are likely to help. Also, I did write a blog article in response to this question, and so I'll link to that in the show notes. And so everything, pretty much everything you hear me say in this episode will be in the related article. And so you can use that as a reference afterwards if you want a little bit more information. So now, let me tell you just what is mild cognitive impairment. Basically, mild cognitive impairment means having cognitive abilities, which means memory and thinking skills, that are worse than quote-unquote normal for one's age, but that are not bad enough to meet the criteria for dementia. And this has commonly been considered as a condition of, you know, almost um, as an intermediate state between having normal memory and thinking skills and having 
a dementia such as Alzheimer's disease, because the nature of such diseases is that they come on very, very slowly. We actually now know that we can see signs of such illnesses, certainly of Alzheimer's in the brain for 10 or 15 years before people are outwardly showing symptoms. So the nature of something like Alzheimer's is that it comes on very slowly. And so that people will go through this stage where they have maybe some mild memory symptoms, maybe some abnormalities on testing, but they don't yet meet all the criteria for dementia. And so so mild cognitive impairment is a term that's been used for quite a while to describe those people. And there are actually quite a number of people who also will be having some difficulties with memory and thinking. And it's not actually due to the very earliest stages of Alzheimer's disease or another progressive dementia. So it's actually really important to not assume right away that it is Alzheimer's or, or dementia. So actually in 2013, uh, there was a major revision issued of a book called the, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And it's the main reference for how we diagnose psychiatric illnesses and also other conditions affecting the brain. So that's called the DSM. And that was the DSM-5 that was issued. And in that revision, they actually described a condition called mild neurocognitive disorder. And that basically replaces in a way mild cognitive impairment. So for clinicians, they're essentially the same. And they renamed dementia, the syndrome of dementia, as major neurocognitive disorder. Now, how likely it is that somebody with mild cognitive impairment will progress to dementia depends on a lot of things. There's been research done to kind of identify what are the strongest predictors. A major one is age. And in general, studies suggest that over five years, about 30 to 40% of people diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment will progress to dementia. But Quite a number of people seem to not get worse over the few years after, after diagnosis, and some even get better. So again, not all mild cognitive impairment is dementia. Now, in the question that was asked, I was a bit struck by the person saying that since she's had some difficulty connecting a name and face, she's presuming that this is mild cognitive impairment. It could be. Uh, especially as people get older, it's fairly common to develop dementia. And most of those people will go through a phase of having what would meet criteria for mild cognitive impairment beforehand. On the other hand, it's important to know if you're older or if you're concerned about an older parent that one, it's very common for older adults to report some difficulty connecting names and faces. That's a really common concern. And the other thing to know is that certain uh, declines in certain types of memory and thinking skills are now known to be part of quote-unquote normal cognitive aging. And if you have any concerns about memory or thinking, especially if they seem to be mild and not very substantial, I really encourage you to read this wonderful uh, report that was done by the Institute of Medicine and that was published in 2015 about cognitive aging. And this is a term that I did not hear when I was in medical school. And I don't even think I heard it as a geriatrics fellow 10 years ago. We've usually focused on the idea of, you know, brain diseases. And here, the Institute of Medicine convened a panel of experts to spend a lot of time reviewing what's known about just how the brain 
changes as people get older when there doesn't seem to be a particular disease or injury changing things. So it's really interesting. And they do find that uh, most people experience, uh, pretty much everybody actually experiences a slowing in processing speed as they get older. Now, this isn't to say that everybody at a given age has the same processing speed because the abilities people have are definitely dependent on their education and how they've been using their brain. So it's, it's a bit like um, the way the rest of the body ages, that you have your genetics, you have your environment, you have you know the way you lived your life or the way things happen to you in life. And then the abilities of your cells and organs change and tend to slowly decline over time. And that's partly based on your genetics and partly based on other factors that have happened to you usually over years or decades of your life. So bottom line, difficulty connecting a name and face in of itself, I would be very careful about assuming that's mild cognitive impairment because it might be and it might not be. And what's most important is that if you are at all concerned that there might be a little something wrong with your memory or thinking skills, or if you're concerned about an older parent or another older relative, it's really important to bring that up to a clinician and get further assessment. Because one, that's how you can find out whether the difficulties fall within the range of normal age-related changes versus actually really being worse than normal, which is one of the criteria for having mild cognitive impairment. And then two, just as in the case of diagnosing dementia, part of what needs to happen is a medical evaluation to look for common problems that can cause or worsen memory or cause or worsen other thinking problems. So if you have any concerns, you want to go and get an evaluation so that those common exacerbators of brain function can be looked for and identified and reversed if at all possible. So now, let me tell you a little bit more about how mild cognitive impairment is actually diagnosed. So the way it's diagnosed is through a clinical assessment that is done by a qualified doctor or other healthcare professional. This should be doable by a generalist who pays attention and is thoughtful. And usually what this clinical assessment should include is, you know, one, interviewing the patient about his concerns and inquiring about difficulties managing life tasks. Next is assessing, um, trying to get at least a little information from family members and other people as to whether they've noticed anything concerning. Also, generally, the clinician should evaluate the patient's cognitive abilities using a short office-based test, such as um, a good one is called the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Test. It is available online for free for clinicians. You're supposed to be a health professional to access it online. Um, Wikipedia says that it takes 10 minutes. I find that it takes 15 minutes with somebody who's organized and paying attention and often takes longer if somebody really does have any memory or thinking problems. So I I think if you're concerned about this and would like your doctor to do this test, it's a good idea to let them know and probably arrange a visit just for that that purpose. And then there are some other short office-based tests that doctors may, may choose to use such as the mini cog or mini mental, but those are really not great for subtle problems. I would say that of those, the three office-based tests that people often use, the MOCA, the mini cog, the mini mental, the MOCA, so that's short for Montreal Cognitive Assessment Test, that's the one that I think has enough detail to get at some of the subtler issues that people may have if their memory or thinking problems are really mild. 
Another thing that the clinical assessment should include is checking the person's medications, specifically checking all the prescribed medications and also the over-the-counter medications to see if any are known to make thinking worse. I'll link to an article I wrote about this called Four Types of Medication to Avoid if You're Worried About Memory. But especially when it comes to over-the-counter, over-the-counter sleeping medications or some of the allergy medications, basically medications that are similar to Benadryl, can slow down the brain's function. And so sometimes identifying and stopping those can help people feel a little sharper. So that's really important when you get the medication review to not only bring in all the prescribed medications that are being taken, but also any over-the-counter medications. And you'll want to look out for the PM versions of painkillers like Tylenol PM or NyQuil, because those also contain that sedating medication, similar, um, usually it is actually generic Benadryl, it's called diphenhydramine, and that can slow people down a little bit. And then last but definitely not least, the clinical assessment should include an evaluation for medical conditions, including mental health disorders and also sleep disorders, which are fairly common in older people. The doctor should look for any medical conditions that can worsen thinking or can mimic early dementia. In most cases, doctors will order lab work to check for problems such as thyroid disorders or vitamin B12 deficiency and electrolyte imbalances, which can be brought on by certain types of medication, especially blood pressure medications and diuretics. And then after this initial clinical assessment, that's when clinicians and, um, you know, ideally in partnership with the patient and family will consider whether additional neuropsychological testing is necessary. So this is testing that is done with a psychologist who's specially trained, and it usually lasts for a few hours, and it just provides a lot of much more in-depth testing of the person's mental abilities. It's good for getting a more detailed description of how the person's brain is working for different types of functions, but that testing doesn't tell you doesn't tell you anything about the rest of their medical health and how that might be affecting their brain or tells you relatively little. So I feel it's important to not just jump straight to that detailed testing and to get that clinical assessment first and that assessment in looking for other things that might be causing or worsening memory problems. So since neuropsychological testing provides us with so much more information than the short office-based testing, you might be wondering, well, do we need to do short office-based testing or shouldn't everybody go get detailed neuropsychological testing. And I would say that, first of all, I, I think it's good for the generalist to do at least the preliminary testing so that there's some something documented objectively in the person's chart along with their concern. And then otherwise, the thing about neuropsychological testing is that I, I find that it doesn't necessarily change the way we manage things all that much. So I think it's optional. It can be helpful. A lot of Patients and families like having that additional information. And especially if the first short office-based testing was borderline or if it was quite close to normal, but still the person feels like there's really something different about their memory or thinking, it, it can be helpful. So I feel it's, um, it's optional or it sort of might depend on the situation and on the patient and family and doctor's preferences for how to manage it. So ultimately... Diagnosing mild cognitive impairment is similar to diagnosing dementia, except that the cognitive impairments should not be severe enough to interfere with daily functioning. And so it's basically a matter of documenting 
the person's, um, they call it subjective concerns, so what they feel they've noticed or what their family says they have noticed, and then uh, getting some objective information on their thinking skills through these office-based tests, either the short ones in the generalist office or the more detailed ones with the psychologist, and then evaluating and ruling out other medical problems, including medication side effects, delirium, other problems that might be interfering with brain function. So now, let's say that a person is diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment. What are the proven ways to treat mild cognitive impairment? So when it comes to treating mild cognitive impairment, generally the goal has been to prevent or delay progression to dementia. And when it comes to that goal, unfortunately, almost nothing has been proven to work. And to date, the conclusion when they do systematic reviews, comprehensive reviews of the evidence is that nothing seems to work for sure in most people. And it's especially important for people to know that no medications are FDA approved for the treatment of mild cognitive impairment. And I'll talk a little bit more about the medication issue in a moment because I have noticed that uh, many people who are diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment are started on medication. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We just want people to ideally be informed of what the research suggests when they decide to start taking a medication or to continue it. So I will link in the show notes to a freely available scholarly review article that covers treatments for mild cognitive impairment. It was published in 2015. And now let me share some comments on some of the specific approaches that have been tried or are being studied for mild cognitive impairment, including some of the ones that the questioner brought up in her question. So the approach that seems most promising to me, and there is some research supporting it, is exercise. Now, it's not quite clear at this time what type of exercise is best for mild cognitive impairment. There was a randomized trial published in 2013, which found that a multi-component exercise program seemed to improve thinking in older adults. And that was in people who had the type of mild cognitive impairment, which is described as amnestic. And that's a fancy term that means that the problems are mostly with memory and not with other aspects of thinking. There was also another smaller randomized trial published in 2012, which found that resistance training seemed to help with memory and thinking skills. So research is ongoing for now. If you're concerned about mild cognitive impairment, I think the most sensible approach is probably to make sure that you include all important types of exercise. Namely, you should try to include the four types of exercise that we know are beneficial to the health of older adults. They're all important because they complement each other. And those types of exercise are, one, aerobic exercise, which is also sometimes called endurance exercise. Two is resistance exercise, which is also sometimes called strength exercise. Three is balance exercises. And in the episode on the Otago exercise program to prevent falls, I have links to a bunch of videos that show the balance exercises that they use to improve balance. And then there are also flexibility exercises, which really help people maintain flexibility so that they can stay as limber as possible as they get older. So all four types of these are thought to be important to the health of older adults. And if you want to learn more about these four types of exercise, I'll post a link in the show notes. The National Institute on Aging has a nice site about exercise for older adults that's called Go for Life. 
In short, exercise is not a slam dunk, but especially given that it has so many other benefits for the health of older adults and of people in general, I highly recommend it and do try to make sure you're hitting all four types. Next, what about dietary approaches for mild cognitive impairment? So there is generally, it seems to me, a lot of interest. People are very interested in which uh, foods might be good for the brain, in which supplements might be good for the brain, in which vitamins might be good for the brain. And there is a lot of published research on the topic. Um, A lot of it is done in people who are supposedly healthy. A little bit less is done specifically in people with mild cognitive impairment. Actually, one of my recent favorites that I came across, and this was done actually in people who did have a diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment, is COCO for cognition in aging. And it has a nice acronym, COCO, C-O-C-O-A. I'll put a link to that too, just for fun. And they, they gave people a cocoa substance and then f- saw some indication that it was improving cognition. So that's kind of fun. But as I said, no particular supplement or nutritional approach has been shown in randomized trials to delay progression to dementia in mild cognitive impairment. There was some hope at one point that supplementation with a vitamin B complex, so that's a supplement that has folic acid, vitamin B6, and vitamin B12. They tried that in people with mild cognitive impairment and got some promising results suggesting that it reduced cognitive decline in in these people. But those results were questioned by follow-up studies, and now it seems that this may only be true in certain subsets of people. So at this point, having sort of looked over the, the summary statements on treating mild cognitive impairment and having looked at some of the research myself in preparing for this podcast episode, I don't feel like I can recommend a specific supplement or dietary approach. But if you do want to read about nutritional approaches to health in general or for brain health, I would recommend um, a book that was published last year by Dr. Michael Greger. He is the physician who runs the site nutritionfacts.org. He spends a lot of time reviewing all the nutritional research that comes out, and he creates videos explaining it on his non-commercial website. And he came out with a book last year. Uh, I don't really like the title. It's called How Not to Die. But I did find that the book was quite interesting. And there is a section about the brain in it that covers lots and lots of research in detail. So if hearing about specific foods or supplements or nutrients is your thing, I would recommend his book. And I think his book just has a lot of interesting information for having a sort of more comprehensive dietary approach to your health. And in all likelihood, what's going to be best for the brain will be what's good for physical health and health overall. So that's a resource for those who want to learn more about about nutritional approaches for mild cognitive impairment. Otherwise, a quite large trial published in 2005 found that vitamin E had no effect on the progression of mild cognitive impairment. Now, there has been other studies in people who have already Alzheimer's disease where it seems that vitamin E may be beneficial. It does come with a a risk of bleeding and a certain type of stroke. So it's not automatically recommended for everybody, everybody. But in people specifically who had mild cognitive impairment, the vitamin E did not seem to help. And then a variety of other antioxidants have been studied. But again, so far, nothing seems definitely beneficial. Now, what about medications for mild cognitive impairment? 
So what they have studied are the medications that are FDA approved for dementia, specifically the ones, there's a group of them that are in a class called cholinesterase inhibitors. The generic names are donepazil, galantamine, and rivastigmine, and the brand names are Aricept, Razadine, and Exelon, respectively. So lots of people take these medications for their diagnosis of a dementia such as Alzheimer's disease, but also a fair number of people have been put on them for their diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment. However, this was studied in randomized trials, and the randomized trials did not find that there was a benefit in taking these cholinesterase inhibitors when people had mild cognitive impairment. And even the benefit in people with Alzheimer's or other dementia has been questioned by some. It shows up in studies, but it's debatable how clinically significant it is. It's also been hypothesized that it probably works for a certain subset, but doesn't do anything for many people. But again, that's for people diagnosed with dementia. When it comes to people diagnosed just with mild cognitive impairment, those medications were not shown to work in randomized trials. So why are so many people taking them? First of all, some experts believe that especially if you have the amnestic type of mild cognitive impairment, so the type where it's mostly memory skills that are affected, not so much the other thinking skills. Some experts believe that a cholinesterase inhibitor such as Aricept might help improve the symptoms of the memory symptoms in the short term, even though it doesn't appear to delay the progression later on to dementia. So... Some experts say that, um, especially if uh, the person with mild cognitive impairment mostly has memory-type symptoms, they could try a cholinesterase inhibitor for a few months and see if it improves the symptoms. But if they don't notice any improvement, it should be fine to stop because, again, these medications have not been shown to delay the progression. So some other approaches that have been tried for mild cognitive impairment, the questioner asked about yoga and meditation. So stress does tend to worsen brain function, both in the short term, as we've probably all noticed, if we're very stressed, um, we may not think as clearly or as well. Usually when we're younger and healthier, a little stress actually does help focus the attention and people perform a little better, but a lot of stress can make people worse. And then we also know that chronic long-term stress is associated with people, people doing less well in terms of their brain health over time. So... Because of this, it's certainly possible that stress-reducing approaches such as yoga or meditation might help in mild cognitive impairment. So, but so far, the studies have either been negative or the results are quite preliminary. Uh, yoga has mainly been studied in older adults with quote-unquote normal um, cognitive abilities, and some results suggest that there can be a benefit to cognition, but you know, they're still working on further larger research studies. And then there was a small study of meditation for people with mild cognitive impairment that was published in the last few years. And this study was interesting. They did mindfulness-based stress reduction. And the way they measured the outcome was not to follow people for years and see how they did, but actually to um, after they'd done the mindfulness-based stress reduction for, um, I forget how long, it must have been several weeks, I'm sure, they uh, scanned people's brains with functional MRI. So this is this kind of real-time MRI technique that allows them to see which parts of the brain are activated. And they did find um, some changes in the activation patterns that suggested that the memory and cognitive abilities were possibly being strengthened or improved. So that was exciting and promising. 
And I think further research is still ongoing on that. So should you do yoga or meditation? I mean, I think it's a good idea just because it's been shown again to be good for the health of older adults for other reasons. Yoga is a nice way to um, do flexibility exercise. And then meditation or mindfulness-based stress reduction has been shown to have lots of benefits in terms of coping with um, caregiver stress or other forms of stress or anxiety in um, that people may be experiencing. So can be worthwhile for that as well. But will it delay progression of my cognitive impairment to a dementia such as Alzheimer's? Nobody knows at this time. The last thing I'm going to mention is brain training for mild cognitive impairment because sometimes people wonder about that. So here too, it's unknown whether it prevents progression or delays the progression to dementia. On the other hand, some of the research does suggest that when people do brain training exercises, they get better at whatever skills were trained. And it does seem like it can alleviate the actual symptoms short term that people are experiencing. And in the article that I have on the website for this Q&A, I have a link to a review if you want to learn more about that. So where does this leave us in terms of how, um, how one should manage mild cognitive impairment if that's a diagnosis that you have or that your parent or another older relative has been given? The bottom line is that no treatment has been convincingly proven to improve long-term outcomes for mild cognitive impairment. So given this, I think it's best for people with mild cognitive impairment to focus on the general approaches that we know improve brain health in people. And these approaches actually generally work for people who have normal cognition, and they also help people who have known dementia. So they certainly can't hurt somebody who has mild cognitive impairment, and they will probably help. So I went over these approaches for promoting brain health in detail in an article I wrote last year. It was part one of the healthy aging checklist, and I'll link to that in the show notes. But, but basically, I recommended the following nine things in that article. One is to avoid brain-slowing medication. There is research linking it to either acceleration of cognitive decline or to developing dementia. So these are medications like sedatives, tranquilizers, and the class known as anticholinergics basically work in opposition to cholinesterase inhibitors such as Aricept. So that's that class of medications that includes Benadryl and some other medications that tend to give people a little bit of sleepiness or dry mouth. And you can learn more about those medications in the article I'll link to, which is four types of medication to avoid if you're worried about memory. So that's number one. Number two, I would recommend avoiding chronic sleep deprivation There is some research suggesting that that also is linked to acceleration in cognitive decline later in life. Number three, you want to avoid delirium. So we covered delirium in a previous podcast episode. That's the worse than usual mental state that is often brought on in the hospital, often after surgery, but can come on after a serious illness in the hospital or even out of the hospital. And that too has been linked with acceleration of cognitive decline in people who already have dementia and also has been linked to a higher risk of having dementia later in life. Not all delirium can be prevented, but sometimes taking sensible uh, precautions ahead of time can help. So that's important too. The fourth thing I recommend in the list is to pursue positive social activities 
purposeful activities and activities that nourish the soul. We see that people who do that seem to do better, and it probably also helps preserve brain health. Number five, find constructive ways to manage chronic stress. This is especially important if you have a source of chronic stress in your life. For some older people, that's caring for another person, such as a spouse, um, or sometimes someone else in the family or social circle. For other people, it might be work, it might be family dynamics, kind of depends on the person. So if somebody seems to be having chronic stress, it's important to take steps to address that because chronic stress does seem to exert a certain wear on the body, on the immune system, on one's brain health and physical health. And in a similar vein for my sixth recommendation in the healthy, the promoting brain health list is to seek treatment if there are any signs of depression or chronic anxiety. Now, they actually think that uh, depressive symptoms are fairly common in people who are very early in dementia. It's not clear that the depression brings it on. But anxiety certainly doesn't seem great for people. And it, these are problems that can be treated, and it's important to bring it up and seek treatment because that can help optimize brain health as well. Number seven in the list, stay physically active and exercise regularly. This is in many ways, you know, probably the most important recommendation, but I didn't put it first in the list just because everybody's heard that a million times before. So I have it in there because it is associated with better brain health. I completely recommend it. And that's often the recommendation that people have already heard about, whereas people don't always think to check on medications or avoid delirium or maybe be a little bit more proactive in managing um, chronic sleep problems or chronic stress or anxiety. Number eight, address risk factors for cardiovascular disease. Um, they sometimes say that you know your brain is full of little blood vessels and your heart is nourished by blood vessels too. And so what's good for your heart is also generally good for the brain. How you address those cardiovascular risk factors depends on how bad they are and on often on the calculation of what your risk is for cardiovascular disease in the, um, the next 10 years. But, you know, it's important to consider that as well. And then number nine, I listed this as an optional item in the original post, is to consider something like the Mediterranean diet, which um, there was a big study published in the last year or two of in Spain. They randomized a large group of older people to have the Mediterranean diet compared to a more conventional low-fat diet. And people on the Mediterranean diet often did better for their cardiovascular health, but they also had a subset where they seemed to be doing perhaps a little bit better in terms of their brain health as well. And again, you know, I think it's less about what are the exact right foods that are good for brain health and more about picking a sensible, a sensible diet that seems to optimize health and well-being uh, overall for both physical health and mental health. So I have details on all of those recommendations, including links to related research and other information in the original article, How to Promote Brain Health, The Healthy Aging Checklist Part 1, and I will link to that in the show notes. So to summarize my suggestions for someone who's concerned about mild cognitive impairment, number one, do bring it up with a doctor and get evaluated. Don't assume it's mild cognitive impairment on your own. It could be something else. Your memory or thinking could be worsened by another undiagnosed medical problem or an inadequately treated medical problem. And so it's really important to bring up that concern to the doctor, both to get some additional objective testing of the memory and thinking because, you know, maybe it's actually kind of normal for your age 
and then to look for those common things that can make memory and thinking worse in older people. And then otherwise, I suggest implementing as many of those approaches that promote brain health as possible. And then last but not least, don't assume that medications that are FDA approved for the treatment of Alzheimer's and other dementias will help because so far the research mostly suggests that they don't help. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting links to the resources that I mentioned, including a link to the written version of my answer to the question that I covered in this episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.